Welcome to part two of our crash course on the history of political conflict in Sudan with Joshua Craze. Joshua Craze, an expert on the region. Um, in our last episode, we discussed the political history of Sudan from its independence until 2019. In this show, and um, we'll be talking more specifically and in more depth about the sequence of events that led to the current outbreak of fighting. And we also discuss how an understanding of how fighting started might inform an analysis of how it could stop. You're listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. This show is funded by our listeners at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. If you're enjoying Crash Course and want to listen to more of it, please do sign up for as little as £3 a month. We really do appreciate it. Before we jump back into the interview, I thought I'd attempt a quick recap of the elements most essential um, to understanding what happens from 2019 onwards. Um, So in, in part one, Joshua told me, the modern history of Sudan has been shaped by a relation of exploitation that between the metropolitan centre in Khartoum and the underdeveloped periphery of the country where the people are poor, but the land is rich in gold and oil. Now, I was told that it was that antagonism between Khartoum and Sudan's peripheries which led to Sudan's free civil wars. Two of those, as you heard, were between Khartoum and the south, the latter of which would lead to South Sudan's independence. The other was between Khartoum and rebels in Darfur, which is in the west of the country. Um, Joshua also introduced the three characters who will be central to this episode. The first is Omar al-Bashir. He's the Islamist military leader who came to power in a coup in 1989 and ruled Sudan for 30 years. As Joshua explained, for the first two decades of Bashir's rule, he maintained power by outsourcing violence to militias in Sudan's periphery. This would often mean private Arab militias repressing non-Arab populations. That was all while Bashir's allies extracted oil and gold. Um, Now, some of that wealth would go to the militias themselves. Um, That was how Bashir sort of funded um, these wars. This arrangement also sustained Bashir's power in Khartoum because the wealth from that oil and gold funded the food and fuel subsidies which maintained people's living standards in the capital. However, crucial to understanding what happened next is that this system broke down. So by the 2010s, this practice of government had cracks. And that was largely because with the independence of South Sudan, Bashir lost access to the region of Sudan most rich in oil. So South Sudan had 75% of Sudan's oil. In the last episode, we also met the two characters whose changing relationship would determine the fate of Sudan after the fall of Bashir. And one of them is Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. He is head of Sudan's official military, the Sudan Sudanese Armed Forces. The other is Mohamed Amdan Dagalo. Um, he is better known as Hameti. Um, Hameti is a former camel trader from Darfur who led pro-Bashir militias during Darfur's civil war. So one of those militias that worked against anti-Bashir rebels and ended up getting rich in the process. So Hamedi, um, as a militia leader, built up significant business interests, especially in gold. Um, and then his Janjaweed militia, um, so a really brutal militia, would be incorporated into the state as the Rapid Support Forces or RSF. So Hamedi was sort of brought in um, to become an official part of the Sudanese state. And he was a bit of a henchman to Bashir. Um, With that in mind, let's jump straight back into the interview, which starts at the point of Sudan's 2019 popular revolution. Welcome back. Um, I've had a slice of toast. I feel the blood sugar rising again inside me. Um, We are joining the story in the 2010s. Um, South Sudan has become independent, which is depriving Bashir of some of his oil resources. At the same time, we have two key characters which have been introduced. One is Borhan, who is head of the official um, Sudanese army. The other is Hameti, who is head of the Rapid Support Forces and playing the role of, of henchman to Bashir. 2019 is when Omar al-Bashir's 30-year rule ends. Um, Joshua, can you talk to me about what happens there? Why was he overthrown? There's an initial failed uprising in 2013, 
That uprising occurs in Khartoum and some of the other cities, and it is violently repressed by the military. And that revolution really is the prefiguration of the revolution that follows. A lot of the tactics that people learn that they use in 2018 and 2019, they really learn in 2013. Why is 2018 really the trigger? Because Bashir is like running an ailing economic vessel. The debt repayments are getting impossible. The IMF is recommending that he cut subsidies. He's worried still about gaining regional approval um, and American approval. And let's not forget that, Amer- that Sudan has been under sanctions um, for the last 20 years because, just to make it even more complicated, Osama bin Laden used to live in Khartoum during the 1990s. And after the, the war on terror begins, suddenly Sudan becomes a country of consent. So in all sorts of ways, Sudan is economically hamstrung. He cuts the fuel and bread subsidies and protests begin. Protests begin in the periphery, in Eddamazin, the capital of Blue Nile, and quickly spread around the country. They spread to Atabara, which is long the site of labor militancy and the site of Sudan's railroad, which used to be an amazing railroad industry, now cut to pieces. Um, and they, uh, they rapidly take over a series of smaller protests that have been organized by something called the SBA, the Sudan Professionals Association, which is a sort of the white-collar version of a trade union which has been organizing since 2013. And it's the SBA that try to take control of the protests. And I think from the beginning in these protests, there is a tension. And it's a tension between the street protesters and the professional politicians and the SBA, the Sudan Professionals Association, so the trade union and the politicians, about what does it mean to protest and what does life after Bashir look like? So who are the protesters? Well, they're from actually from all over the place. You've got protests in the periphery, which are fundamentally in Darfur, about justice after 20 long years of violent war. They're about devolving power to the peripheries. But there's also protests in the urban centers of Khartoum satellite cities about the socioeconomic disaster over which uh, Bashir is presiding. And that what unifies them is that they have the same form of organization, which is that they're run by resistance committees. And our resistance committees are non-hierarchical, local forms of organization. So decisions are not made from the top down, they're made from the bottom up. One of the reasons for this is that in the 2013 protest, protests were decimated by infiltration by the National Intelligence Service. So this is a form designed to resist state infiltration and designed to remain true to the roots of authentic local democratic organizations. And it's these organizations that are coming onto the street. And quite soon, every community wants one. It's like the new pair of Nike trainers. So in Khartoum, the initial one might be in Kalakla, which is a hard, scrabble, rough area in the south of the city. But soon enough, even the well-heeled children of the elite <coughs> in places like Atbara and, um, and, and Khartoum too, to some of the better healed neighborhoods of the city, also have resistance committees. Those resistance committees look a bit like NGOs. They have like good PDFs already of their PowerPoints and so on. But it's these groups that are leading the protests. And these protests quickly get stronger and stronger and stronger. And for Bashir Security Council, which is composed of the army, the national intelligence and the RSF, this creates a problem. Shit, like this is everybody. And this also then leads to a problem because of the depth and the widespread organization of these protests. We have a problem about repressing them. Because it's one thing to kill people in the peripheries or to go to Atbara and kill former laborers who now work as gold miners. It's another thing to kill the children of the political elite who are now protesting on the streets. It's another thing to kill the soldiers' own families. So what they decide to do in April of 2019 is to throw Bashir under the bus. They organize a coup d'etat internal to the regime, organized by the army and the RSF by Hemeti, and get rid of Bashir. Now, Bashir's party, the National Congress Party, and the Islamists never forgive Hemeti for this. And in a way, the, the roots of the current war begin at that moment, begin with what the regime sees as the treachery of Hemeti. So Hemeti and the army, Ibn Auf, is then pronounced as the, as the, the you know, the, prime, the president, and he's going to see over this regime. But the protesters are like, uh-uh, uh-uh, no way. 
No, no, we want the army out of power. We want the history of Sudan, which has been the history of military dominance and Egyptian organized military dominance since 1955 to end. We want an actual civilian transition. So not only do they not leave the streets, they create this sit-in in front of the military headquarters. And if you go to Khartoum and you come out of the airport, you'll see the military headquarters is this enormous, almost like magic kingdom of military strength in which the Navy's headquarters looks like the Noah's Ark. The Air Force headquarters looks like an enormous cargo plane. They're all of these sort of like odd, you know, like uh, Disneyland attractions of the army. It's this incredible monolithic power. And outside of it, they basically, the protesters begin a carnival. There's mutual aid, there's free medical care, there's free food, and they go, we're not leaving. The army at this point begin to get really alarmed. And they're like, okay, how do we, like, they start to put pressure on the sit-in, they try to like attack its extent. And at the same time, they open up negotiations with the political wing of the civilians. And they're called the FFC, the Forces of Freedom and Change. That includes the SBA, the trade union. And the civilians, on the one hand, are legitimately worried about a massacre or a civil war. On the other hand, they're also kind of worried about the street because they would like power for themselves. And this is like a golden opportunity for, to position themselves as you know, the force of the civilian transition. The army is still worried, it's still worried, until on the 3rd of June in 2019, the decision is made to clear the sit-in. And this is during Ramadan, it's before first prayer, so before the Adhan, the army and the RSF sweep in, kill hundreds of people and displace the sit-in. And they think, okay, thank God, that's done. Uh-uh. On the 30th of June, the end of that month, the anniversary of Bashir taking power in the coup in 1989, a million people come onto the street and the army is freaked out. Belatedly, the international community, the Americans in particular, have suddenly decided to become interested in this. For this entire time, they sort of looked at the street organization with, a, you know, with their, their fingers over their nose. They go, what is this, this non-hierarchical organization? Like, who do we talk to? How do we negotiate with this non-state force? And what they end up doing is try to push the military and the FFC, these civilian politicians, into an agreement. Now, the street, there's all of this you know, groundswell to have a general strike push the military out of power. And instead, what happens, and I'll close this bit here, is that the, the, the civilians basically sell out the street protesters and they create a transitional government with the military in August 2019. And I suppose this is, I suppose, a perennial question in these kinds of situations, which is, you know, is this a a sellout by the FFC, so sort of like the civilian, well, I mean, you know, you're saying it's a non-hierarchical movement, but people, you know, who, who've taken on some kind of leadership roles of the civilian movement against the military, who say, we're going to come to a compromise, we're going to power share with the military. That I suppose that can be seen as a sellout, or it can be seen as sort of a, a legitimate and understandable decision, because, I mean, presumably the chances of, of, of civil war or the military just saying, screw this, we will repress everyone, were, were fairly high. I mean, you know, the, uh, there aren't a bunch of incredibly reassuring examples to look to in sort of the neighbouring region when it comes to popular uprising, creating secure and stable government. So, I mean, are you, are you potentially being overly harsh towards um, that decision made by the FFC to sort of go into coalition as it were with the military? Well I mean you know not to be someone who thinks that post facto history is on my side but what we see in the next four years is the military is fundamentally uninterested in giving up civilian rule and I think look lots of my friends joined that administration right and and I think they have real positions and real motivations for doing so and let's spell them out fairly. One was that what we needed to battle at that stage was the old regime was Bashir because Bashir was gone, but Bashir's regime was not gone. The Islamists were not gone. And the best way to do that was in a transitional government with the military. So like, you know, you choose one enemy at a time. First, you choose the regime, and then we come to security sector reform and the military. So that's like one reasonable position. Another realist position is that the army wasn't going anywhere. And I think this is the um, fundamental disagreement is not about is, is about timing and strategy, which is there was an enormous groundswell of support at that time for a civilian government, for pushing the military out. What happened to the civilian government after they went into transitional government was that they immediately inherited the economic disaster that Bashir had left them. 
And they immediately decided that the way to do this is they needed international funding. They needed the tax turned on by the IMF and by the Americans. So what did they do? One, fundamentally, they were part of a regional realignment that saw Sudan make links to Israel, which was part of the price that America took to uh, like enable funds to go in. Then they cut subsidies. In fact, they cut subsidies more efficiently than Bashir ever did in order to qualify for the HIPC, the highly indebted um, <clears throat> country poverty reduction act. And a whole, they did a whole variety of things basically oriented to the international community. And they lost whatever civilian support they had. Meanwhile, the army isn't giving up anything. It's not dismantling the old regime, it's picking over it for scraps. So the army's entrenching its position economically while the civilians are losing legitimacy on the ground by not improving the economic situation. In that sense, what is the civilian government? It's a trap. Right? Like what appears to be an attempt to avoid civil war actually turns out to be a way for the, for the, for the military to weaken the legitimacy of the civilian forces. And I suppose, so in your analysis, they were potentially too focused on international support and not enough, if we're talking about the civilian politicians, were too focused on gaining international support and not enough on maintaining internal momentum within the country. And I suppose a, a figure here, should we introduce Prime Minister Amdok? Um, so he was the, the face of this civilian and military government. He was the prime minister, I think. And he was a former UN economist, so presumably someone who was you know, well-placed to reassure international investors and international governments and the IMF to sort of say, look, please, please support us and, and give us a, you know, a, um, a line to a flow of resources that can keep this show on the road. Right. So Hamdok comes in as the face of the FFC and the international community from the beginning makes the mistake of thinking he's the guy in charge. And he's not in charge in a double sense. One, he's just the nominee for the FFC. And the FFC is continually undermining him, deciding that they don't want to do what he wants to do. And in fact, in many ways, he's there because he is weak. But two, he's the prime minister of the civilian government. Above them, there's a Supreme Council, which is run by our man Burhan, and his deputy, Hemeti. And they maintain control, not just basically of the military, but also largely take control of foreign policy, and also decide that the, the actual military's economic empire is not going to be touched by the reforms of the civilian government. So they've already carved out a state within the state, and there's no real way to put pressure on them. The, the international community is insisting that, yeah, you can do business with these guys, but Han's not an Islamist, so it's fine. Um, everything has to be done slowly, slowly, and they're sort of largely looking at the, the formal appearance of the state. And I think the great critique of the international community over the last four years is it has systematically marginalized the resistance committees. The main democratic force in the country is the force that it has shown that has no interest in talking to or doing business with. Can we briefly talk about Islamism, actually? Um, I think it'd be sort of useful to flesh out a little bit. So, so Bashir was an Islamist. You know, his, his sort of political background was in Islamism. But the army was secular? I mean, how should we understand that? You're saying Burhan is not an Islamist? What about Hamedi? Right. You know, yeah. What does Islamism, what, what role does it play in these different yeah. social so, forces? So, you know, as ever, um, it's complicated. The, the Islamism that one understands as political Islam in Sudan, because there's very many forms of political Islam going back to a Mahdi, a revolt against um, the British, you know, um, uh, during the colonial period, but if we're talking about political Islam, then you have the, it's, it's, it begins with the Ikhwan, with the Muslim Brotherhood, um, which begins organizing really in the, the 1940s, um, in Sudan. And it takes, takes, you know, the form of the Sudanese Muslim Brotherhood run by Hassan al-Turabi. And Turabi is the guy who works with Bashir after he takes power. Bashir himself is not per se an Islamist. The Islamists use him, um, to try to create very like classic Sunni reforms of life, they intend to institute Shia. Um, they uh, to, like to institute Sharia. They attempt to in, like enforce Islamism in the South. There's much more drastic codes for women during the 1990s. This is part of the reason of the intensification of the Second Sudanese Civil War. But with 2001 um, and the War on Terror, Bashir sees that Islamism's days perhaps are numbered. 
as a force for intellect, you know, international backing and basically throws Tarabi under the bus and becomes a much more secular force. The army is also, not to give you know, Egypt too like, key a role in this, but is also an Egyptian creation, right? It's an Egyptian-British creation and is fundamentally secularist. And so the basic antagonism that you see in Egypt going back to the 1940s, right, which is the Brotherhood and a colonial repressive military economic state are still the two forces here that run the, the, the you know, that the, the constitute like two of the major power bases in Sudan. The army itself is not Islamist. There are many like um, officers who are Islamists. There are, there is a big Islamic organizing contingent, many members of Bashir's party, the National Congress party, um, were Islamists. And later on, as we'll come to after the, the coup in 2021, they sort of sneak back into power. But in 2019, when people come to power in this transitional government, the rule is the Islamic party is banned. The Brotherhood's gone. We're going to dismantle the Islamists' role in government. Bashir is, um, I mean, Burhan is not an Islamist. And Hemeti has shown no indication that he has any interest in the Islamic movement and, in fact, has been fighting against the Darfuri Islamic movement, the justice and equality movement. OK, let's go back to this this sort of unstable government where you've got the, the military leaders essentially in charge and then you've got this civilian friendly face. Um, there was then a 2021 coup. Um, and in that coup, Hamedi and Burhan, so the leader of the um, Rapid Support Forces and the leader of the Sudanese army, um, they ally to say, let's end this farce. Um, we don't need to pretend there is civilian rule anymore. I mean, if in your narrative, there, you know, the, the civilian rule was only a facade anyway, why bother do the coup? And sort of, you know, mm-hmm. up, upset the international forces. Why didn't they continue with the facade? What, what, what provided a breaking point? So to, in 2019, the game was, according to the two agreements they signed, there were going to be elections in 2022. And until that time, first half of the transitional period, ruled by the army, then they were going to pass over to the civilians. And the coup happens just as they're about to pass over to the civilians, who are much more serious about what's called the dismantling committee. The dismantling committee is the committee that's supposed to dismantle the old regime. And as the joke in cartoon goes, what the military want to do is dismantle the dismantling committee. That's one problem. There's another question, which is whether they were worried about finally seeing some sort of accountability for the attack of the 3rd of June on the sit-in outside of the, uh, outside of the army headquarters. The way they have the coup is crucial because it cuts to another of the failures of the civilian government, which is that Oh, great. 2019, we have a transitional government. The civilians have been brought into government with the military. Great. You know what's still going on? There's still a civil war in Sudan. There's still a civil war in Darfur, and there's still a civil war in South Kordofan and Blue Nile. And all of those rebel groups, not all, many of those rebel groups, have united into one, fact, one group called the SRF, the Sudan Revolutionary Front. Now, initially, <clears throat> they're included in the civilian negotiations with the military. But then by the time August comes around, they've been pushed out. So what we see here is a repetition of this basic like dialogical logic in the country, which in the center, there are peace agreements and civilians, and the question is of dictatorship. And in the periphery, there is war, and there are agreements between military actors. And so the 2019 agreement repeats this binary. And on the basis of this binary, you've still got all these rebel groups. And here, Hemeti sees a chance. Because for a lot of these rebel groups, the FFC are not the great civilian protectors that the international community see them as. They're just the latest iteration of elite riverine politicians from Khartoum here to repeat the centre-periphery binary, right? So they are not, you know, they're, they're often from very elite families. They're not representative of the periphery's issues. And so people are going, nah, we, like, we're not going to do business with them. Hemeti, Though Hemeti has fought a war against us, especially in Darfur, for 10 years and handed our asses to us on a plate, if I can use the French, maybe we can do business with him. So they have a separate agreement called the Juba, the Juba Peace Agreement, which brings them into government. And suddenly, what was a civilian government now is half rebel and half civilian. But the rebels are largely supporting Hemeti. And Hemeti uses them to basically create a crisis in the country. So they start to call themselves FFC2 
and have their own protest outside of the military headquarters, demanding a change in the civilian government. The army supporters in the east block Port Sudan and all the oil, and basically the country's brought to an economic crisis in which Burhan and, H and Hemeti get to come in and say, we're going to come in and save the revolution. It's these civilians who are messing everything up. We're going to save all of this. And of course, what that is a cover for is for them trying to block the dismantlement committee and block the handover. But this coup is not a coup, we should tell your listenership, in the sense that Sisi's coup was a coup in Egypt. This is not a strong coup that's going to usher in a period of military rule. This is a coup as a bargaining position. And I think one of the things that's so difficult to understand about Sudanese politics is that very frequently wars are begun as negotiating positions. And negotiating positions are part of wars. They're part of battle, you know, uh, wars of maneuver, right? And, and so this coup was not done to create a new uh, military regime. It was done to force Hamdok into a weaker position in government. And so, you know, a month after the coup, Hamdok's back. He's back for six weeks because the coup is greeted by street protests across the country. And then he's forced out because the coup has no legitimacy. And for a year, the coup just sort of like wanders on, on like two broken legs, desperately looking for a civilian face, in charge of an economic disaster it doesn't want to be blamed for. And with Burhan and Hemeti increasingly at odds with each other. And what then happens is that Burhan has no popular support, has no political legitimacy, increasingly turns to elements of the old regime, brings them out of prison, brings them back into government, increasingly sacrificing any sort of support, not that it really had any support in the first place, that the military has. And that brings us to the opening of renegotiations with the civilians at the behest of the Americans and the Emirates and the Saudis in September 2022. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. That's 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 cleared that up in my mind. So the, the coup was not so much to say we are done with power sharing, we want pure military rule. It's to say that our initial agreement had some terms we don't like, which sort of involved reducing our power and maybe a little bit of accountability for, for what we'd done in the past. And they said, we didn't like those terms, so we're going to organise a coup essentially as a bargaining chip to renegotiate the terms of a power sharing agreement with the civilians exactly um, and amdok briefly says okay go for it why not but then after six weeks the whole sort of facade crumbles and we end up with military rule but with pure military rule that they didn't really intend to have anyway so it's a little bit unstable and sclerotic right and of course at this point all the international funding has been turned off as a result of the coup they've been promised money by the emirates and the saudis which doesn't come through the economy is just massive levels of inflation um, you know, like something like 20% of the country is food insecure. And they're also aware that, well, these are the conditions that pro that provoked the the deposal of, of Bashir. And that's where we are. So this is a really, from the beginning, it's a weak coup and it just gets weaker. And it was, you know, it, and it was important to say that even during the coup period, being in Khartoum, there were street protests. There were, and the army sort of stood back from them often, Um there were like lively music events. There was, it wasn't, you know, like the sort of Eastern European totalitarian vision of what rule by military junta looks like. And so they're in a, a, a weak position. They're sort of planned to, to mount a coup to renegotiate some form of rule whereby they have a, you know, a friendly face, but they're still essentially in power. That's somewhat broken down. If they're in this weak position, Hermeti and Burhan, why do they decide to now fight each other? Now, because to me, if you're in a weak position, the last thing you want to do is divide your own side. But they decide at this point that even though they're in a weak position, they're now going to launch a, a fight against each other. Why, why, why do they make that decision? So back in September, October 2022, um, there's huge international pressure to have a new agreement. On the street, this is a non-starter. So for the resistance committees, the position is very, very simple. No militias, so no RSF, no Hemetis people, no army in power. That's like, that's the beginning. Like, they're like, we're done. There was the massacre in June, June 3rd. There was a coup. We do not trust these guys anymore. But for the FFC, they're like, oh, we could have a deal here. And so there is this starting of negotiation leading up to what in December 2022 is called the framework agreement. Now, what is agreed in the framework agreement? Basically nothing. 
Like, it, the history of agreements in Sudan is that you make sort of a formal agreement and you push everything which is difficult down the road. Like, so you don't agree on security sector reform, you don't agree on the status of the RSF, you don't agree on the economy, and they become the negotiating platforms, they become the sites of dispute and struggle later on in the political process. So in December, they really agree nothing. Like, they, you know, they, like half the actors don't even agree. And this allows, for instance, a parallel political process to be set up in Cairo. So the process in, in Khartoum really legally recognizes for the first time Hemeti and the RSF. But Han does not like this. It worries that it entrenches Hemeti. And let's not forget, Hemeti is from Darfur. The army leadership do not like him. They, they're racist about him, even though he's an Arab. They think he's an absurper from the periphery, this upstart with a second-grade education. He should go back to being a camel trader. The old regime that Burhan is increasingly allied to hates him because he sold Bashir down the road in April 2019 at the time of the coup. Egypt hates this guy at, to, to all levels. He's this little militia guy trying to upstage the army which we have made in our name since the very beginning of the Sudanese army. So they create a separate process in Cairo. And Burhan says to all of the Darfuri rebel groups that used to be with Hemeti, just to make everyone's mind explode, you need to come with us. So what used to be, if we talk about like the primary antagonism was the civilians versus the military, now it's Hemeti and Burhan trying to group together as many regional forces as possible as many local, as many civilians as possible, and as many rebel forces, and they're increasingly looking at each other as part of this process. So now the Darfuri rebels are more inclined to Saf. Hemeti is trying to make him into, himself into the great civilian politician. He's trying to get close to the FFC. And the FFC, the civilians go, oh, maybe with this guy, we can come to power and we can forget about the street. When the framework agreement signed, the streets protest. No one in Sudan likes it. You know who loves it? The UN, the Americans. It's an agreement made for external consumption, right? And I think it talks today to the, the difficult plight of, of mass organized politics, that things are so dominated here by regional players and by the economic interests of, for instance, in this case, America and the United Arab Emirates. So we have this framework agreement signed. We have a parallel process in Cairo and we have a question, of, okay, how are we gonna bring these two things together? We come to what's known as phase two of the framework agreement, which is this absurdly short time frame. One month, end of Ramadan, the Americans go, you've got to get it done. You've got to resolve security sector reform. So security sector reform, what is that? It's the question of, is there an independent RSF, which let's not forget is literally almost the size of the army, or do they have to be integrated into the army? Now, everyone has their own time frames for this. Hemeti's initial time frame is 22 years. But Han's initial time frame is two years. <laughs> the civilians propose a mediating time frame of 10 years. This has to be resolved in a month for the internationals to be happy. And already now, like people are walking out of meetings. The RSF are military deploying outside of the air bases because the one thing that they don't have is air power and the one thing the army does have is air power. And the situation is getting incredibly tense. And every single person in Sudan is saying, except the international community in the UN, this war is about to come. Unless we do something right now, there is going to be open conflict. And I, just because I, I, I want to clarify in my mind, I'm not sure I quite got this. So the, who, who in this, you know, you've got these two competing powers now. You've got the, the official army and the rapid support forces. Who was it who you said is sort of gaining support in the periphery? So the people in sort of the, the rebel groups in Darfur, who, who are they siding with at this point? So Burhan's, Burhan, the head of the army, has made an appeal via the Cairo process to have those groups come and join the army right. against Hemeti. As it turns out, that hasn't worked. They've remained studiously, largely neutral, and we can come to that. But like, the, 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 sort of the process is everyone is trying to maximise support. Hemeti's trying to appeal to the civilians. At the same time, they're all trying to go around the region and around the world gaining support. So Burhan has his connections to Russia. Hemeti decides to pay a very ill-advised trip to Russia. Uh, and he arrives in, in Moscow the day that they invade Ukraine. And Burhan is just rubbing his hands at this because suddenly Hemeti is desperately, you know, the guy from the periphery is trying to position himself as the respectable politician with international credibility. The Americans have just gone, ugh, this guy is dead to us. 
So everyone is going to the Emirates, to the Saudis, to the Egyptians, to Haftar in Libya, trying to get as much support in view of this impending civil war or struggle. And so just, I suppose just to put into one sentence why um, this war or conflict or whatever we're calling it, we'll get onto that in a moment, between Hermeti and Burhan breaks out is because Burhan wants Hermeti's power base, the RSF, to be absorbed into the army, which he controls, and Hermeti doesn't want that. And so this is basically a struggle yeah. for Hermeti to keep his own independent power base, which Borhan is quite understandably worried he will then use to ultimately become the top dog in, in, in Sudan. And that's what yeah. they're fighting over at this point in time. I mean, yeah, right. If I could give you two one-sentence versions of this struggle. One is Bashir made rival competing security services, including the army and the RSF. They're now fighting without Bashir to sort of keep them in step with his finances. And it was inevitable. That's one claim, right? The other claim, which isn't the same claim, is that the international community have kowtowed to the military and allowed them to be part of a government that the Sudanese people have no interest in them being a part of. And it's that kowtowing and that acceptance of these rival figures in government that has led to this war. Let's talk about the interests at stake. So there's, there is now this, this, this conflict, there's open fighting, especially in Khartoum, but also, also elsewhere in the country. And what are they fighting over? So they're fighting over state power, yes. Who's, who's the top dog? I mean, are they also fighting over resources? I know the RSF sort of control the gold industry. And then you've got the official army, which sort of control construction and, and some banks. Is this, is this a material thing? Are they, are they sort of fighting over economic power or is this really they have a drive to control the state? So I'm not even sure they have a drive to control the state. I think this is what makes this a really weird conflict and why it's not a civil war. Because if you, and I, I don't, like, if you listen to Hemeti and I don't think he's lying, he's like, what we want to do is organize a civilian transition. I think this is basically a defensive war. It's fought by two rival economic empires and it's fought to conserve their positions relative to what they see as an inevitable civilian transition. And even if it's a civilian military government that, that ends up, neither side is actually thinking about instituting a, a new form of like state control by either part. I think some of the old regime, some of the Islamists have a different understanding and they are within the army. But I think for Burhan and Hemeti, it's really not, even for control of the state, it is a defensive war in the same way that the coup was a defensive coup. This is a defensive war, obviously with much more cost in terms of human life. There's no, I mean, are they fighting for resources? Not explicitly. I think there's a huge question, which is what is happening to the resources of the state and who basically is going to be bankrupted first? So soldiers in Sudan are traditionally paid in cash. And they've both been building up reserves of cash. The Hemeti's trade, as it were, his financial resources are better equipped for this sort of war because they can be, they're, they're literally trucked out of the, out of the country, for instance, into Libya. And he's been receiving supplies from Haftar in Libya, I imagine, with the behest of the Emirates. Otherwise, they wouldn't let Haftar do it. So he has a sort of, he, he basically, like, he is a peripheral, you know, um, militia leader. So he has the supplies to keep this going. Who, for instance, controls the university, the Bank of Khartoum's accounts? Who controls the money that they get as transit fees from South Sudan's oil? None of this is clear to me, and I don't think this is clear to many people in the country, but they are clearly some of the stakes that will actually determine the course of this war. I mean, in a way, the way you've described it is the most resolvable it's ever sounded. I mean, could, is it not the case that some mediator could come in and just say, look, Hermeti, you can keep the gold. Um, Burhan, you can keep the construction industry, will make sure there is no real accountability process so none of you get sent to the ICC or get prosecuted for the crimes of your respective organisations um, and we will have some transition to civilian rule and you guys get immunity and a bunch of cash. You know, it wouldn't be a just outcome, but it, it w would something along those lines be somewhat plausible? So I think if you were to talk to my most, you know, realpolitik cynical friends um, in the international diplomatic community, they'd go, yes, that is exactly what we're going to try to do right now. There are some obstacles. Obstacle one, um, and like, let them, obviously that like totally sidelines 
there's some these people, whatever. But fine, like let's play, let's play with that scenario. Obstacle one: the army really hate Hemeti. The level of like hatred and deep anger can't be dismissed, right? And then I think there's a lot of residual pro army feeling in the international community because they are the state force. There's just like a, a basic refusal to to sort of think about Hemeti as a, a potential figure in the state in any sort of way. Um, I think Hemeti understands this really is existential for him because him losing power also means him losing power in Darfur. And there's all sorts of people in Darfur that are only too willing, only too willing to look forward to the day when Hemeti has lost enough power to be attacked. And they're not just non-Arab forces like the Masalit currently being armed and arming themselves against Hemeti, but also figures within the Arab community, like Musa Hilal, who was the last leader of the Janjaweed, who is the sworn rival of Hemeti, and who is now being armed by the Sudan armed forces with the dubious role for the French, but we'll leave that aside. Um, right, so there's all of these forces ready to take him down unless he can assure his position at the top. And I think that makes Hemeti unlikely to be willing to negotiate, but I do imagine what we will ultimately have from this, unfortunately, is another negotiated solution, which repeats the errors of all the other negotiated solutions, which does run along the lines of what you're suggesting, which is a realpolitik solution that says, what is the problem? Military power. Who needs to be at the table? The military actors. Let's have a peace process in Djibouti or Juba or Nairobi in which there are the military actors at the table and they come up with an agreement basically to conserve power and we enter back into another ceasefire before the next round of violence when one of the sides feels that they're existentially threatened. I mean, I might be grouping myself with your most cynical real politic friends, but I do, I suppose I do somewhat struggle to see an alternative. I mean, if you've got, if you've got a military which is so powerful both economically and, well, obviously militarily because they're the military, but, you know, they're sort of maintaining security in the country as well as having a huge role in, in sort of the functioning of its economy. I mean, a clean slate whereby you say, you know, I mean, do you, do you dissolve the military or do you say you have to accept less power than you had before? Who enforces it? I mean, without sort of some sort of external intervention, it seems to me that it's very difficult to not have a compromise with at least one of the militaries, you know, if we're talking about these as sort of two competing factions with a military, two generals, presumably you need one of the generals on side. And is the alternative not just a fight to the death between these two guys, loads of destruction along the way, and then one of them establishes, you know, some sort of military rule with a civilian face? I mean, there is a voice that I have heard among some uh, of the, I guess you would call them ultra-left um, inside Sudan that would say, yeah, we should have these two forces exhaust themselves and then they come to the table weakened. I'm not saying I support that position, but that is a position that has been um, enunciated. I think like we could talk about their strength, but I think we also have to remember fundamentally that these are really weak forces. I know that sounds weird when you phone Khartoum and you hear like the airstrikes, but on the other hand, like this is not the Egyptian army. There's not a social base. There's no appetite for either of these forces to rule. Their coup failed. There's, there's going to be continued protest the moment this war has ended. They're going to have to strike a bargain. Um, there is another argument that says, and again, I don't know if anyone wants to support this, both these guys get sanctioned. Both these guys have as maximal pressure from the Emirates and Saudi Arabia put on them as possible. And the real deal that needs to be done is the deal that says to the Emirates, you get your ports on the Red Sea, your influence is guaranteed, and the way that your, your influence is guaranteed and the way that Saudi influence is guaranteed in the country is by having an actual civilian government and by telling your men to lay down their arms and step aside. Because, let's not make a mistake, the most important diplomatic powers in this country are not America, not even Egypt, but are Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. And you said, you know, in, in that sort of construction, you sort of said, someone says to the UAE and Saudi, look, you get your port on the Red Sea, you get your strategic interests. Um, and the best way for you to achieve that is via civilian government. And you, you know, you tell your guys to stand down. I mean, who's doing the telling there? Who, who would be selling that prospect to the Emiratis? I mean, fundamentally, the, the Troika, the UK, Norway, um, the US and so on, together with you know, there will have to be, you know, there'll be a role for the African Union in EGAD, which is a regional 
um, negotiating body that is pretty hamstrung at the moment. Um, I think that the mistake is to create a ceasefire situation in which you basically have a RSF and an army which have no, which have not lost anything or given anything up and basically are still in the role of conserving themselves because then we're just setting up the same situation to happen down the road. Right, like, you know, the one of the great Southern politicians' um, memoirs is called Allier, um, Too Many Agreements Dishonored. And the logic of, of Sudanese politics has often been that there are agreements before any side is ready to have an agreement and there are agreements that no side intends to honour. And I think the danger of like an emergency agreement is that that's precisely what it does. On the other side, of course, I understand everyone who says, okay, but the crucial thing is that we're facing an incredible humanitarian situation. This conflict could easily spill out of control and become a real civil war through sort of like exacerbating existing political enmities in different regions of Sudan. That has to be the priority. And if that means retrenching the position of Burhan and Hemeti, then that's the risk we have to take. I suppose, you know, with respect to the Troika, I know there'll be sort of alarm bells ringing among some listeners, I'm sure, sort of this idea that, you know, these Western powers might play some sort of neutral mediator whose sole interest is in sort of bringing about peace. I mean, what what is the priority of the US, the UK? I mean, I know Norway's in there because they traditionally play sort of, I mean, I, I don't know if Norway has particular particular strategic interests um, in, in Sudan, but those Western powers, what do they want out of this? Or do you think they are playing kind of the role as an, of an honest broker because they don't want state breakdown and all the security concerns that would potentially generate? Oh, I mean, I don't think they're, you know, I would never call either America or the UK honest. Um, the, if you look to 2019, what they wanted was twofold. One was regional realignment. So Sudan's agreement with Israel was fundamental to America. And the other was this sort of end of history, 1990 certainty of a reformed, liberalised, modernised economy and the chance to play out those ideologies. And I think that was, you know, what partly led to the current um, situation. I don't think they play the role of an honest broker. I think they play the role of a financial power. Right? Like that's... And and so insofar as like they have the ability to turn on taps of money, um, which can be well or badly used they can at least work with one voice with the actual powers involved in this conflict, which are the um, Emirates and Saudi Arabia and to some degree Egypt. And So just to clarify as well, Egypt, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, are they, I mean, they're not particularly on opposing sides, are they? It's not the case that this is sort of some proxy war between these three nations. No, it's more complicated than that. So everyone is on every side. Really, except Egypt is behind Burhan and the army, right? The army is its creature, and it's so behind Burhan that it's held its nose up to Burhan's realignment with the Islamists. Because, of course, Egypt's government is relentlessly hostile to the Muslim Brotherhood. Let's not forget that that's how it came to power when Morsi was deposed, right? So they've held their nose up for the moment because they think the institution worth conserving is the army. <coughs> the Emirates has one prince who is close to Burhan, another prince who is close to Hemeti. The reason they're close to Hemeti also structurally is because they've been using his mercenaries and because gold goes via Dubai. But they play both sides. And ultimately, I think their interest is pretty, you know, to go back to realpolitik, Michael, is in like regional stability and control of Red Sea ports. Russia also has forces playing on both sides. Saudi Arabia has forces playing on both sides. And they really... I don't think they're particularly invested in civilian rule, to say the least, but they are invested in stability for what is ultimately a neighbour on the sea. And so I suppose this is all making it sound very much not like a proxy war. You know, I mean, it sounds like, you know, there's, there is this potential fight to the death between these two generals because they see that their, their interests have become, you know, completely incompatible. But there isn't, you know, there isn't anyone in the international, well, I don't want to use the word international community, but there aren't sort of outside great powers saying it's in our interests for this war to continue and we want to fund um, this side and we want to fund this side and we're willing for, you know, to, to sacrifice as, as many of Borhan's troops or as many as Hermeti's troops, depending on which side they're, you know, they're backing to try and achieve some sort of strategic outcome. It's, it's not really a Cold War situation. This is one where it's, you know, the struggle is potentially internal, and then we can be 
more or less critical of outside roles, but it's not that they are what's driving this conflict. Absolutely. All right, that's, uh, we've, that, that was very comprehensive. We've covered a lot. I suppose I want to just finally talk about what might happen next. Um, and I suppose if, how would this, do, I mean, I suppose we've talked about how some sort of negotiation settlement could, could come along, even if somewhat unlikely. Um, I suppose I, I want to talk about how this could develop into a full-blown civil war. And I suppose uh, sort of just, just thinking this through now, I mean, for it to become a full-scale civil war, presumably you'd need some genuine social forces to begin to align with each side. It, it would need to not just be a conflict between generals and, and, and factions of the military, but there would have to be some degree of, you know, regional or class or some kind of social force to sort of give this the kind of momentum that would make it a full-blown civil war. So obviously the, the previous civil wars we've talked about, that was, there was a dynamic that fueled it, which was that you had a, a genuine antagonism between people in Khartoum and sort of the people who lived on, on the Nile and the Arabs and the poorer people um, who lived in areas with the resources that the people in Khartoum wanted. So, you know, that that drove that conflict because there was a social basis to it. Is there anything comparable that you can imagine emerging here whereby it becomes a societal conflict as opposed to an intra-elite one? And I think the first thing to say is that during this whole period since Bashir fell, violence in Darfur has not stopped. Violence in Darfur has, in many senses, increased um, since the signing of the Juba Peace Agreement brought the Darfuri rebels in. So in one sense, if you're from Darfur and people are like, oh my God, is the civil war going to spread there? You'd be like, what, what are you talking about? We've, we, we, the, the war has never stopped. And so you've seen pretty terrible violence in Darfur in the last uh, three weeks, in El Janena, in Yala. And that takes up... Um, Dynamics between Arab and non-Arab groups. The Masalit have been arming themselves against Hemeti's militias. And you can see that sort of violence has the potential to intensify if SAF comes in and basically sort of supercharges extant um, class divisions between Arabs and non-Arabs. Many of the non-Arabs like live in IDP camps, in big displaced people's camps. Um, and you can see that being supercharged, but not developing into sort of, I don't know, a qualitatively different logic of war than the war we currently see there. In the, the, the interesting thing about these two sides, as I mentioned, is that they don't really have much social support. Hemeti has been doing his best to position himself as simultaneously an Arab nationalist in Darfur, a national multi-ethnic leader in the rest of the country, and someone who also speaks in Chad, because he has family in Chad, which is one of the threats to the Chadian government, which has meant that he hasn't got much support from Chad. Leaving that aside, in so for instance, in Kordofan, in the south of Sudan, not South Sudan, but the south of Sudan, he's been successful in taking the Misriya, one Arab um, nomadic population, away from the old regime and from the army. So there you could imagine clashes and battles between the RSF and the army, which pertain to like extant ethnic divisions there. In Blue Nile, there's been divisions between those who've been backed by the militarized actors that entered the government after 2019 and groups that feel excluded from that and are struggling to be part of it. And you've, you've seen the same in Eastern Sudan. There's been this general struggle of groups that feel excluded from the peace process. All of those conflicts could be supercharged, as it were, by different sides between the RSF and the army, sort of taking hold of those extant cleavages and exacerbating them. However, one has to say that thus far, the country has remained remarkably um, uninterested in doing so, uninterested in sort of committing itself to that form of suicide um, or that form of struggle. This has really been a struggle for Khartoum and in some sort of terribly ironic way, all the other civil wars in Sudan have never been fought for Khartoum. It has been Khartoum fighting them in the periphery. Now we have a war between a peripheral actor genuinely contesting Khartoum in Khartoum and the rest of the country's gone, nothing to do with me, mate. And even ordinary people in Khartoum have also gone, nothing to do with me. Yeah, mate, right? absolutely. I mean, they, the, the army has had to bring in another militia, the um, Central Reserve Police, to fight the RSF in the town. Because even the, the SAF soldiers aren't particularly committed 
what are the what what would be the red lines for both sides? You know, is the war is there a war aim that's other than a fight to the death now? So, you know, I should say that I'm not inside, you know, the Burhan control room or the Hemeti control room. I'm a bit more inside the Hemeti control room. I think Hemeti massively misjudged this. I think he thought that he could take Khartoum and his troops have controlled the majority of Khartoum, whatever SAF um, propaganda is saying, and the international community would come round. He was positioning himself as the man who would assure the civilian transition. And what he's seen, partly because his troops have committed some pretty egregious uh, war crimes in, in Khartoum, it seems like, sexual offences and all sorts of things, um, that he's really, and, and of course because of his picture in, in Russia at the time of the Ukrainian invasion, he's burned his international legitimacy. And a lot of people close to the Americans are coming out and going like, he got to go, you know, in their very like ridiculous cowboy-esque way. So I think he, he has a real problem. Um, he has a real, he's basically taken Khartoum and he's realised there's no way out here. And there's no way that he's going to win this war, I don't think, because he's not going to be given international legitimacy. And if he's not going to be given international legitimacy, then the danger is that he's pushed back to Darfur and he begins a long, drawn-out war in Darfur against a Sudanese state. So I think that like the, the only way to bring him in is to say, we have to offer like cast-iron assurances to you and to the survival of your industries and your people. And I think the problem is that the Sudanese state is sufficiently weak that it's very hard to do that in a convincing way, given the strength of the forces in, in Darfur and elsewhere arranged against him. Burhan, I think, can play for time in a different way, because he is the army. And though he's lost Khartoum, he has control of most of the rest of the country. And, like, for instance, uh, Port Sudan is under SAF control, which is the, the life bread for all the things going in and out of the country. On the other hand... He cannot take Khartoum, where the RSF are experienced urban warfare fighters without an incredible loss of life and without basically annihilating the capital city. I don't think he can afford to do that. So what that looks like is an extended stalemate, basically, where RSF install themselves in civilian regions of the capital, SAF occasionally strafe them with artillery and air bombardments, and this becomes a sort of very violent standoff leading up to negotiations. I, I think that's the most likely picture of what's happening right now. But that makes a lot of sense. So in terms of war aims, I mean, like I suppose many conflicts one could point to, you think this is essentially created by a misjudgment on Hermeti's part. He thought he could win quickly and gain international legitimacy. He now hasn't. So it's how to make the best of a bad situation for Hermeti. And, but also on the other hand, there's, there's, there's no way in which Borhan can sort of win this outright in any way that doesn't involve a hell of a lot of blood. Right, and I think that's where Burhan, who actually made the first move, as far as I'm aware, not Hemeti. Hemeti positioned his troops next to the airbase, but Burhan attacked them, I should say, as far as I know. This will be contested for at least the next year. Um, but Burhan also banked him again to eliminate Hemeti. And now he can't eliminate Hemeti. So what does that look like for him? Because the other possibility, which I think we should not rule out, just to make your listeners' heads finally explode, is the likelihood of a coup within the military, deposing Burhan in favour of someone from the old regime. And I think then that... what good would that do? Because they'd still be fighting Hamedi. Oh no! And then they would realign with. No, Hamedi. they would fight with. They would. They would still be fighting Hamedi. But the problem is, Burhan right, okay. might be willing to come to an agreement. Also, Burhan might be interested in a civilian transition, whereas. For people like Nafi al-Nafi, there is this moment now where like, the old regime can come to power. They can take power and they can re reconstitute some violent form of Bashir's regime. Like, there, every crisis is an opportunity, you know, as is said by conservative politicians and Czech Marxist theorists alike. This is the opportunity for them to really, like, grab power and, and, and then fight the war against Hemeti. Joshua Kreis. Um, that we have covered so much um, I appreciate you giving um, us this time so much as I say I do really recommend your piece in Sidecar although I have to say there was there was more detail in this conversation and in the Sidecar piece even though it was a very uh, <laughs> a very good piece but go to it if you're if there's any of this sort of conversation we're like oh what was actually going on there it's excellent introduction to the politics of Sudan um, Joshua Craze, thank you so much for joining me on Crash Course no worries pleasure to be here thank you My thanks again to Joshua Crowes for that incredibly insightful, comprehensive introduction to the history of political conflict 
in Sudan. You can check out his article on the Sidecar website, which, as I say, formed the basis of, of some of the conversation we had there. Um, as ever, Crash Course is possible only because of the support of our patrons. Um, if you aren't one of those already, please do go to patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. You can sign up for as little as £3 a month. That will give you access um, to all previous episodes, including season one on rent and the season we've got coming up on whether COVID changed the world. Of course, if you already are a patron, thank you so much. You make this all possible. Um, that's it from us for now. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design.